afternoon. Uh, my name is Lucina Jones and I will be facilitating the training for today. Um, I hope everyone is well. I wanted to get started today with like a brief icebreaker because we are um, early afternoon and we'll be going into late afternoon. So um, I just wanted to know what questions everyone had. Um, usually you are able to kind of put those questions into the chat box, but I wanted to just get your brain started thinking about like what your um, intent was when you signed up. Like what intentions did you have in terms of what you wanted to learn and what you were coming for? So if you could just type those things into the chat box so that I can make sure that we're on track, um, but then also uh, you will get the opportunity to ask questions throughout and we do have people monitoring the chat box. So I will try my best to get to everyone's questions. Um, but if you have anything you'd like to share as well, you can also put that in the chat box and hopefully it'll be really interactive. Um, so I just kind of wanted to start with the question in terms of what's in your cup. And what I mean by that is how are you doing? Where are you at? So if you could just type that into the chat box so that we can see how everyone's doing, that would be great. And so when I say what's in your cup, how are you doing? Where are you at? It's also um, to say like if someone tipped your cup over, what would fall out? Would it be honey? Would it be vinegar? Um, do you have coffee in there for a wake you up? Um, or are you feeling really good about life and you've got some great tea in there? Um, what is in your cup? I have water today. I'm trying to stay healthy and self-care is super important. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Today's training is on safety and crisis prevention, intervention and response. I do want to just be clear because we're not talking about restraints. We're not talking about going hands-on. Um, we are actually only talking about being able to identify and assess crisis, making sure that you're on the same page with your team where you're talking about managing crisis and how to potentially prevent crisis through observation, assessment, and management. Um, the goal is to identify specific practices to ensure safety in office and field-based setting um, while you're attempting to engage mental health consumers we're really going to work on situational awareness and talk about how to apply it when conducting field work. Definitely going to identify specific practices to ensure safety when we're talking about conducting street-based outreach. Um, we're going to talk about what a crisis is in terms of being able to define it and then have um, scenarios or specific examples of consumers in crises so that we all are on the same page with regards to how do we define that. And that's important because we're looking at how to apply what we go over today to those particular situations. We're also gonna talk about self-regulation techniques so that we're able to manage our own emotional responses during a crisis. And then we're talking about nonverbal and verbal de-escalation techniques to use when a consumer has transitioned into um, an escalated place or a crisis. Okay, 
So for all intents and purposes, when we talk about field safety versus office safety, field safety is specifically those areas outside of the office. So that could be like a Starbucks, that could be if you're going to a homeless encampment, that could be um, a satellite office outside of your primary place of employment. The reason why we have to define field safety is because sometimes we get really, really comfortable when we're doing uh, work, when we're out supporting our members and, and meeting them where they're at and really um, partnering with them in their transition through their journey. Uh, and sometimes we kind of get very comfortable and we can start to make decisions that would normally um, impact us in a negative way, but because we are working in the field, we kind of have a little bit of a laxed perspective. So definitely field safety is any place outside of your regular office setting. The office set, office safety, excuse me, is directly tied to where you are normally, like what is your specific office? Um, and and if you start in the field and end in the field, then your particular office will be your home base. Where do you check in with your supervisor? Um, where do you park your laptop or your files? Okay. So when we talk about field safety versus office safety, we're talking about how to keep you safe and well in the field when you're engaging consumers, um, but then also when you're on your way to engage with those consumers, when you're on your way from engaging with those consumers. When we talk about policy and protocol specifically tied to field safety and office safety, we're talking about what does your facility have in place that sets up standards of operations or standard practices around how do you meet people in the field? Do you um, just pop up on them if they don't have a cell phone? Or do you work with their family to schedule dates and times to meet up with them? Um, do you cancel appointments if they don't confirm them? You know, what is the policy around being in the field? What protocols do you currently have in place for ensuring safety? Uh, the reason that this is important is because each agency, whether contracted or directly operated, has to adhere to Department of Mental Health expectations and guidelines. That's significant because when we are working with our consumers, the goal is to make sure that they have access to every service and support provided through Department of Mental Health, but also the safety um, that goes along with being a Department of Mental Health consumer. So this slide is on here because we strongly, strongly encourage program managers, supervisors to have field safety and office safety conversations around policy and protocol specific to the Department of Mental Health expectations and guidelines. For example, one of the expectations and guidelines is that you are always readily identifiable, meaning you are to carry your Department of Mental Health badge wherever you go. And usually in person, this sparks conversation because some people um, feel like that could potentially violate the client's privacy, but then it could also potentially embarrass the client. I'm wondering if anyone is having any strong reactions to me saying that the expectation is that you always have your um, badge you know, in view and readily available. Directly operated versus contract agencies with regard to field safety and office safety. This particular um, content is important in the sense of some contract agencies are expected to go hands-on, meaning practice restraints, when they are having 
um, a potentially unsafe situation with regard to a client. When we talk about directly operated versus contract agency, you have to be aware of where your facility stands with regard to how to protect yourself from a client who is um, physically aggressive. Many agencies do have an aggressive client policy, but this can also um, tie into like an aggressive peer or colleague. Like what is your specific facilities policy on an aggressive client or an aggressive colleague? This is on here because when we talk about field safety, many of our peers transport clients. Many of them get into their vehicles, um, <clears throat> excuse me, whether or not the client is having a good day or bad day, we know that they have appointments they have to get to, and there has to be a sense of, okay, can we agree that you're gonna be safe, right? But what happens if that client escalates? What happens if that client escalates while you're in the middle of traffic? or on a crowded um, residential street? You know, how do you respond? How do you manage? Who do you contact? So when we move forward throughout the training, you're gonna hear specific examples and strategies around policy and protocol, directly operated versus contract agency responses. But then also the goal is that you become aware of what the expectations are for you as a service provider through the Department of Mental Health what those expectations and guidelines are in terms of field safety and office safety. The greatest tool that you will have under your belt in the moment of crisis will be a situational awareness. What's going on around you? Who's in the building? Who's um, close to you? Where are your exits? What do you have on you that can become weaponized? Um, who is walking past? Uh, if you're out in the field, who's walking past, where is the nearest safe, well-lit area, um, can you get into your vehicle and pull out comfortably? You know, when we talk about situational awareness, we're literally talking about what is going on around you. We're also talking about what's going on in you. We're talking about being aware of where your resources are. We're talking about being aware of who you need to contact and how quickly they're going to be able to reach you or get access to you. So when we talk about situational awareness throughout the training, we're talking about those things that um, can potentially create an opportunity to either have you exit quickly, get support quickly, or um, barriers that would interfere with getting support quickly or exiting quickly. Awareness and response, situational awareness continued. When we talk about situational awareness, we're also talking about you being able to assess whether or not you are transitioning into out of a crisis or if this is something that can be managed in a way that prevents crisis and can be folded into the client's treatment plan. So assessment versus crisis, um, or excuse me, assessment versus management is huge. So when you're talking about being aware, we're talking about information gathering, we're talking about assessing for where you are in a particular um, stage of crisis or communication with the client. So when we're saying assessment, it's not necessarily that you're trying to get to a diagnosis, but you're trying to identify where you are with this client. Is this client agitated? How are they feeling? What's going on? Where are you? Where's the support going to come from if this client escalates? The whole idea of assessment is to gather information, not just about the client, but about where you are if this client escalates. So 
part of your assessment would be like, what am I wearing? You know, um, who's in the building? The client looks frustrated and upset, or the client has been speaking erratically, uh, pressured speech, they have word salad going on, they've endorsed um, auditory or visual hallucinations, they've self-reported um, withdrawal symptoms. You know, you're gathering information and you're trying to figure out where you are in the stage of resolving this or going into crisis. The difference between assessment is you're still gathering information. Management is you have already made a decision and you are moving forward with addressing the issue. So when we're talking about are you still assessing or are you still managing, we're talking about are you still asking yourself who's gonna be my support? Am I able to calm this client down? Or managing by, okay, we need to call someone. We need to get a different service out here. We need to get additional supports. The reason that this is important when we talk about awareness and response, because in addition to assessing the situation, you're also assessing your own safety. So we're looking at behavior, we're looking at um, voice tone, we're looking at how this client is doing with coping with the things going on around them. Um, what have they been experiencing lately? Are they frustrated with us? More and more information we're gathering to decide where we're at in the stage of escalation, or can we manage this very quickly with a simple answer? So while we're doing the assessment about the safety, we're also assessing like, oh, okay, does my desk need to be cleared off and just in case this client um, escalates? Or can I take something off from around my neck, like a lanyard that has my keys that can be grabbed? Um, is there something on my desk that's sharp that can be utilized to cause harm toward me? Or is my supervisor in the building? Or is my team lead in the building? So there's this dual process going on where you're assessing how the client is doing while also assessing where you are and how you're doing so that you can start to create a safe environment while also deciding on how to manage the situation if it gets to crises. So this is really a super, super sensitive process where you're constantly gathering information about the client, about yourself, and about your situation. The reason that that's significant is because all three of those will flow into how you manage the next few steps. As we move forward, we'll talk about assessment and management in terms of crisis in the field versus crisis in the office and how to be safe and how to increase your awareness in both situations. So for example, if you're in the field, again, look at what you're wearing. Are you, do you have on tennis shoes? Um, do you have uncomfortable shoes? Do you have um, shoes that could potentially cause an issue if you need to exit a situation quickly? How much jewelry do you have on? Is your hair long and in a ponytail or is it down and can it become um, easily snatched? You know, This is not to say that you're inevitably going to end up in crisis when you're doing consumer outreach, but it is to say that you are better off safety proofing and preventing situations by maybe keeping your hair up, um, keeping comfortable shoes on that allow you to move quickly, minimizing what you carry with you into the field, um, decluttering your desk just in case you have a client who is unpredictable and may pick something up and throw it, 
It's really just about building and establishing healthy and safe practices, habits that are going to keep you and your consumers safe, but at the same time, make it easy for you to get into and out of a space in the event of an emergency. When we also talk about field office, um, field versus office safety, we're also talking about items that may be personal to you that have your personal information in them. Um, we're also talking about anything that can be grabbed, pulled, caught, snatched, or otherwise used as a weapon. We're talking about how you communicate your whereabouts to your team. We're talking about whether or not you know your exits, um, whether people know where you are, what high-risk areas are you going to, and making sure that you know where your resources are in those areas, such as either police, the neighborhood watch, or um, how to describe the area to PMRT or SMART if you're going to be contacting them. We're also talking about how do you store your personal items in the field. One of the great things about um, working in the field is that you can minimize all of the things that you bring with you to the extent that you can lock everything in the trunk except your badge and your car key and your cell phone. So it's really, really important to know how you're storing personal items in the field. Also, how much are you gathering about your client before you go into the field to meet them? Um, is it a familiar area? Is it a well-lit area for parking? Um, if there's not a well-lit area, is there someone who can come with you? Are you able to lock your car um, in the sense of like walk, click, walk back? You know, how easy is it for you to um, make sure that you are adhering to safety protocol around vehicles. And we'll go over some of that vehicle safety protocol as well. So really when we're talking about awareness and response, we are talking about your awareness in terms of those items and in the field, how are you um, implementing that awareness or how does it manifest itself, especially in the office. We're talking about what kind of practices do you have in place now that keep you safe? Uh, what kind of Safe practices do you have that keep your clients safe? One of the conversations that came up in our recent training last week was, you know, with COVID, some clients are not comfortable wearing a face mask, but clinicians are explaining to them, well, I want to keep you safe, so I'm going to wear a face mask. Or here, I have hand sanitizer, I'm going to have some for me, um, can I give you some? Um, or I want to make sure that there's enough space between us to keep you safe. Um, and to keep me safe, and I hope that's okay. You know, how are we also setting expectations around these things? Does anyone have any specific examples around how they set up um, healthy and safe practices for themselves, whether it's part of your routine or if you're in your office or in the field? So some are noting that they do have um, their badge in plain view. Um, and I think someone is asking, with regard to the badge, is this only in the office? Not necessarily. So your badge should be worn in a visible place whenever you are working with consumers. It's really important for um, consumers to know who you are representing, how are you supporting them, and um, what offices you're from so that when we talk later on about expectations, they know what to expect from you as a service provider. So the badge does a lot more than identify who you are. It really also helps people to make sure that they are 
um, their thought process sometimes is in alignment with the services you're providing. Um, I usually sit closer to the door in case of an emergency or high risk situation at work. This is great. Um, I do have a peer who sits with her back to uh, the exit, but the thing that's kind of odd about that is the client is in the same space. And so they would literally have to bump into each other if they were on their way out the door at the same time. Keep scissors off the desk, bring additional masks and gloves while outreaching during COVID, keep back to the wall. So definitely keeping scissors off the desk. I actually keep all sharp things off of the desk. And this is not to say that our consumers are uber violent and are just not able to um, manage or self-regulate, but it is to say what healthy and safe practices, even if we have a colleague, who is currently um, overwhelmed and burned out and maybe they have an emotional response to something. So it's not so much just for consumers, but healthy practices in general. So definitely keeping scissors off of the desk, making sure that you have additional mask and gloves while you're outreaching, um, maybe even additional hand sanitizer. We discussed in a previous training, having extra bottles of water possible as an additional hand washing support. Um, they can just kind of pour on and, and keep your hands clean during this time. Keeping your back to the wall, I think that that's something that um, is a little bit of a gray area because I think it depends on the setting. Um, when I train new staff, I always tell them you don't want your back to the wall. The reason is because if you're leaning up against the wall, you can easily be caught off guard. But then also, if your back is against the wall, you have very, very, very little space to move and adjust. And sometimes you can mirror people to help decrease their, um, their frustration and their anger because they hear you through your nonverbal body language that's mirroring them. And so if you don't have enough space to do that, then sometimes um, it, it really is a lost opportunity. So I think Keeping back to the wall, it really depends on um, your comfort level and the setting and where you are. Um, so thank you for that discussion, guys. So now transitioning into areas of safety in the field. When we talk about vehicle safety, it's very important to note that the Department of Mental Health does not reimburse for tickets that you receive. Um, or if your vehicle is towed because you failed to notice um, signage. So what's super important about vehicle safety is we're not just looking at where you're parking and is it appropriate parking. We're also looking at what's in your vehicle. You know, are you putting like your purse or wallet or laptop or camera or iPhone in the front seat? You know, whatever neighborhood you're going into, it doesn't matter the socioeconomic status of the neighborhood. What do you have in plain view in your vehicle that can be tempting for someone outside of your vehicle to want to become someone inside of your vehicle? Um, how do you store things to keep them out of plain sight? You know, is it in the trunk? Also making sure that your gas tank is full, especially when you're going into a new area, making sure you're locking your vehicle whether you're in a new area or not, making sure that you have access to your vehicle right away, not having to wait for three or four people to pull out from behind your vehicle to actually get in it and be able to leave. One of the things that came up was parking in consumers' 
uh, garages, front yards, or driveways. I strongly encourage for you to always park on the curb, not on the curb, but on the street, um, close to the curb so that you can get in and out of your vehicle and leave. I have had experiences, as have my colleagues, where they have been blocked in by a consumer or their family members, and then that consumer or that family member walks off, and now you're waiting. Um, that's a super safety issue from my perspective, only because then you don't have the freedom to move about. So vehicle safety also includes where you're parking and how quickly can you get in and out of your vehicle. We're also talking about um, making sure your tags are up to date and registered and, and noticing where you're parking in terms of if you have to go into um, gated communities. We had someone share last week that they and their partner went to um, a mobile home park and they parked where they thought it was appropriate, but the sign was covered and they actually came out while one of the vehicles was being lifted onto the tow truck. And so that's significant, especially if there's a safety issue and then you don't have a vehicle to get into to leave. So just being mindful of where you're parking, what's in plain view, how quickly can you get in and out of your vehicle, will your vehicle start, do you have gas, um, you know, making sure it's locked, things like that. Also, physical safety. Physical safety meaning, again, what are you wearing? Are you in a homeless encampment and you're wearing wedges or heels? Or are you um, on broken ground and you're wearing shoes with slippery soles? Um, you know, or are you somewhere working with a client, but you have a lanyard that has your ID, your cell phone, and your cell phone has your credit cards in it, and then it has your car keys on it, then you have your badge on it. Um, it's really just heavy, but it's around your neck, you know, or are you wearing something super heavy and it's 90 degrees outside and now you're feeling a little bit more exhausted than you would and so in terms of physical safety you're already vulnerable you know have you had enough water how are you feeling um are you alert your physical safety is super important because it can really really mess with your situational awareness it really can mess with your alertness if you're not physically healthy and feeling well, then you can slow down your response time and potentially create a situation for yourself um, where your reaction is not as swift as it needs to be. Someone says, keep your backpack in your trunk inside of a car. Um, always bear inside. I think it's always put inside. Um, Definitely making sure that whatever you carry with you, if it's not a necessity during the meeting, put it away. Definitely put it away. Put it in the vehicle out of plain sight. In terms of um, physical safety, we're also looking at did you eat? You know, how are you feeling? Um, do you have your EpiPen on you if you have allergies? Uh, just making sure that you physically are okay, um, you physically are, are safe in terms of dress, in terms of what you're wearing, on your feet. Also, do you wear a lot of jewelry? Um, but more so, are you dressed appropriate for the weather? Uh, if you're in a situation maybe like a, a homeless encampment where there's a lot of like feces 
or a lot of crowding? Do you have your mask and your gloves? Um, feces in Los Angeles County was recently a really huge issue. So when we're talking about physical safety, we're also talking about making sure that you are carrying maybe extra bottles of water with you to rinse off your shoes or hands in the event you come in contact with something um, that could be potentially a biohazard. When we talk about HIPAA, what we mean is how are you storing your information? Is it in a locked box in your vehicle, put away? Um, is it something that can be left in the office or do you have to carry it with you? Oftentimes we have our members whole identity in our referral packet from their social, their date of birth, their birthplace. If you're an FSP, you might also have their birth certificate and a copy of their social. So when we talk about HIPAA, we're talking about how are you protecting the information that you have on you that specifically ties to consumers and service provision. So it should be in a locked box in the trunk at all times because it should be behind two locks. Health and wellness. So health and wellness is super important. We're talking about are you resting? Are you hydrated? Are you eating enough? Did you come to work sick? Did you come to work exhausted? These things also impair not just your judgment, but your response time. So if you're not feeling well, then we're talking about a potential situation arising where either a client is negatively affected Maybe they catch your cold, or maybe you don't respond or assess to a potentially unsafe situation because you didn't catch it, because you don't feel well. This is a pretty important topic for discussion outside of just COVID. This also includes burnout. Um, when we talk about burnout and how you're doing and how you're taking care of yourself, we're talking about how present are you in the moment when you're meeting with clients, especially so that you can talk about how this client is doing so you can assess for risk factors, so you can assess for substance use, so you can assess for um, maybe self-harm, reckless behavior, uh, homicidal or suicidal ideations. But if you're not feeling well, there's a chance that you could miss something super significant. So when we're talking about safety, we're also talking about you, the whole person. How are you doing? How are you feeling? How are you thinking? That is super important, especially when we look at if you feel not so well, maybe you park in a place where you just want to be able to get in and get out, but then your car gets told and then you have to walk to a place and now you're physically in a position where you may be harmed because it's a newer neighborhood, you're not recognized, um, or you get caught up in maybe um, some miscommunication or anything like that, right? So health and wellness really can go a long way. And usually I know we say, oh, that sounds a little far-fetched, but one of the interesting things is many of these experiences that we share have happened. Um, and they've happened more than once to people in different facilities. And so it's super important to first and foremost take care of you. First and foremost, feel okay going to work. First and foremost, feel alert, feel engaged, and feel present. And then that will also strengthen the stance that you take when you're practicing strategies to enhance physical safety and practice and enhance vehicle safety. And then also when you're being aware of how you're storing um, HIPAA-related information.
biohazards. Is anyone uncomfortable asking clients to not just like wear masks and wear um, gloves, but just, you know, take a few steps back, maybe sit farther away, um, maybe, you know, wash their hands before a session. Okay, we're getting some no's. No one feels uncomfortable. That's great, um, especially because when we talk about biohazards, we're talking about making sure that communicable, communicable, excuse me, illnesses are really, really under control. You know, that we're saying you keep your germs, we'll keep ours. And especially now with COVID, we're looking at some really unprecedented things occurring in our communities. And the increase of stress and anxiety um, can really make people respond in ways that they typically would not. And so we did have um, a couple of Department of Mental Health employees mention last week that there are people who are refusing to wear masks. And so what we did was we kind of just said, hey, okay, some language we can use around those experiences are, well, I'm going to keep you safe by wearing my mask then. And then I'm also going to sit away from you to make sure that we have enough physical distance between us to keep both of us healthy. Um, and I'm gonna use some hand sanitizer. Would you like some? You know, really facilitating conversation around keeping each other safe versus that person feeling like they have to do something that makes them uncomfortable. Um, and then communication. Does your team know where you are? How do you as program managers, supervisors, clinicians, frontline staff, how do you communicate where you are or where you're gonna be or when you're gonna get there? Um, all of that. How are you communicating it? How often are you communicating it? Um, and are you taking the opportunity to make sure that if something happens, at least one other person knows where you are in the field, okay? Or even in the office. So one of the things that's super helpful is even if you're in the office and you're used to working with consumers, making sure that someone knows that you're going to be behind a closed door with the consumer. Hey, I'll be in my office with so-and-so or hey, I'll be in a conference room with so-and-so, you know, just to make sure that someone knows where you are. The other thing is this isn't just for clients who may escalate. What about a natural disaster, an earthquake, someone needing to know where you are so that they can check on you guys to make sure everything's okay? So communication is super huge in terms of um, being safe, especially in the field or in the office. Does your team know where you are? Group me, community thread within team. I do like group me. Um, I'm not sure if it's on Android. I know it's on an iPhone. But GroupMe has been super helpful, and I love being able to like drop my location and a client initials with the peer, just so that they know, oh, she's here, and I don't know who her client is, but if I need to find out, I know what their initials start with. So GroupMe and a community thread with the team is a really great idea. And then just um, continued areas of safety, things to keep in your mind <clears throat> when you're out in the field and you're conducting outreach illnesses and airborne diseases. So there are many homeless initiatives that are driving um, service providers into direct encampments. 
One of the things that we have to remember is that oftentimes our consumers have established a network in a community and it can be traumatizing to be pulled out of a homeless encampment. And so the reason that's significant is because we have to be aware of how we're working with those clients and what that resistance may look like. It could really be a trauma response. And so taking our time and being open to working with them through these process um, and, and being open to meet them and support them where they're at, that would be the best way to like really work with people that we're trying to transition from homeless to housing. However, that patients can open us up to certain illnesses and airborne diseases. And we wanna use constant hand washing. We always, regardless of COVID, wanna use um, a mask or gloves when we're helping move, um, safety glasses if possible, and just making sure that the client knows, well, because I'm not sure of what, um, you know, what setting we're in or, or anything like that, and I don't want to mess up any of your items, I'm going to wear gloves, I'm going to cover my face, I'm going to, you know, adhere to safety protocol. And then also, also, also always carry some form of hand washing or hand sanitizing mechanism with you. So um, we have a comment just going back to um, the communication about where you are. Regular group chats, WhatsApp, and checking in in the morning about what your schedule looks like, definitely. We also, though, want to be mindful about what we're using in terms of a communication tool because we can't use client names or identifying information if it is not um, an encrypted app that we're using to communicate with our peers. Accessing medical care. This is super important. In the event of an emergency, how would you describe where you are or what is going on to the support system that you're contacting, whether it's a hospital, emergency room, or if it's PMRT? How do you access medical care? How do you communicate that, right? This is super important in terms of safety because you want to be precise and you want to be clear on what the situation is especially if we're contacting law enforcement to get support. That way they can bring the SMART team or MET team with them. And that would reduce the wait time and we could potentially avoid a crisis um, that gets bigger by just making sure that people get right to us as quickly as possible. So when we talk about accessing medical care, we're talking about making sure you know how to get to you where you are, what time of day it is, who to call, how to describe the situation so that you get the support that you're seeking um, very quickly. Also, reporting incidents. How do you report what has taken place? Who do you contact? How often do you um, check in with whoever you're reporting to? Um, do you call them and they stay with you on the phone throughout the report or throughout the incident? Or how often do you have to connect with them? How often are you checking back? Um, I had a supervisor who would say, give me a call every five to 10 minutes. Let me know what's going on every five to 10 minutes. That may not be realistic though. So one of the great things that can happen is that you meet as a team and you discuss how do you report incidents? How do you communicate when something is a potential crisis versus a significant crisis that's already in play and it's getting worse? So, these are specifically in terms of accessing medical care and reporting incidents, conversations that need to be had ongoing 
with your team, with your program managers, supervisors, clinicians, direct care staff, because there has to be um, a streamlined way to communicate when there is a crisis, when there is an issue. Clients who use substances, this is super important. I don't know what everyone's thoughts are on meeting with clients when they are intoxicated using recreational marijuana. Um, the way I was trained is you don't work with clients who are intoxicated. However, some facilities are utilizing a harm reduction model. And so while you know the client may be intoxicated, how do you meet with them if they are in the process of withdrawing or the process of using or, you know, if they are actively intoxicated? How do you meet with them? Do you decide not to? Do you put it on pause? Do you check in with your supervisor? You know, these are also conversations that absolutely have to be held. I advise not to meet with clients who are intoxicated because they're, people in general are unpredictable. Our agency has trained us to reschedule their session. Absolutely. I would agree with that. People are unpredictable and even more so when they are under the influence. When you're meeting a client in the field and they're in their natural setting and they are intoxicated, my thought is you are the individual who is at, at the disadvantage because this is their natural setting and they're unpredictable. That's anyone, not just consumers. So I think my advice, my encouragement would be um, unless you're practicing a harm reduction model or unless otherwise advised or directed by a program manager or supervisor, um, you can always reschedule a session if a client shows up intoxicated. Um, and then also recognizing when it's time to leave, recognizing that, you know, this may not be the best time to check in with this client, like even though they're not intoxicated right now, um, they have been intoxicated, they're going through withdrawal, or they haven't been on their meds as a result, it may be time to leave and really think about rescheduling this meeting. So when we're talking about areas of safety in terms of clients who use substances, we're talking about having conversations and training around knowing when it's time for you to say, you know what, let's just reschedule this. Or even you walk up on a client, you see them maybe smoking marijuana, and you say, oh, unfortunately, we have to reschedule. Um, we're not able to facilitate this session. You know, or even if they come into the office, um, recognizing when it's time to end a session and recognizing when it's time to draw a boundary line with the client who does come into session intoxicated. So we're going to transition into actually defining a crisis. So the first portion that we um, kind of transition through rather quickly is just knowing what's going on around you, knowing like what you're wearing, knowing if you're physically comfortable, being aware of who you're meeting, where you're going to be meeting them at, making sure that you're practicing good habits with regard to um, storing not just information, but any items in your vehicle, knowing how you're feeling when you're going into the field, or when you're in the office, being able to communicate where you are, being able to be aware of whether you have access to an exit or you don't. So really first just building the, the groundwork for saying, okay, how aware are you? Where are you? So not just how aware are you, but where are you? Where is the client? Um, how's the client doing? How are you doing? Your setting. Now we're going to transition into saying, okay, are you actually in crisis? 
Um, how does that look? What's going on for both of you? Elements of a crisis situation. So what we mean in this specific slide is usually in a crisis situation, if we're talking about a genuine crisis situation, there are gonna be some outcomes. Hospitalization is a possibility, meaning that this person may be involuntarily or voluntarily hospitalized. There are safety concerns with regard to them causing injury or grave bodily injury to themselves or someone else. This individual will most likely lose access to a pertinent resource such as employment or housing at the end of this interaction. Or there's gonna be a total loss of freedom, jail or a hospital. So in terms of elements of a crisis situation, we know that we are in crisis when loss of freedom, loss of a resource, safety concerns or hospitalization as a possibility are present. Um, are, um, what if their baselines are always high? This is a wonderful question. When you have someone whose baselines are always high, then that's their baseline. And I know that sounds super weird, but the reality is if you're chronically suicidal or chronically homicidal, we have to then look for the thing that takes you to a threat. So if I'm always angry, what made me angrier? Or what happened that now I'm angrier? So if I hate the world every day, but I really hate it today, then that's, that's kind of like the marker. When, okay, I expect to hear you five to seven times a week report suicidal ideations because that's your baseline. But now you've reported it an eighth time or a ninth time or a 10th time, right? So we look for the behaviors or the situation that's above the baseline. And usually quantifying this is helpful. So if I say client will decrease angry outbursts and suicidal ideations from five to seven times a week to three to four times a week, I know I have a problem when they're having them now eight to nine times a week. We've actually gone above the baseline. So sometimes what's helpful in identifying whether or not you are transitioning into a crisis situation is to look for behaviors that are above the baseline or they move the baseline. Um, so elements of a crisis situation, it may look like a crisis. We're like, okay, we're definitely gonna be calling the SMART team or the MET team or PMRT. Um, this person is an active danger to themselves and others. We know that if we don't get SMART here, then we're gonna call the police. So that person's probably gonna go to jail. Like we definitely have a crisis. But then the police take a while and SMART takes a while. And by the time either or both arrive, the individual has calmed down and they're no longer in crises. That's okay. That doesn't mean that you were not in a crisis situation. It means you managed that situation in a way that resolved the crisis and stabilized it. So it doesn't mean that the client was never in crisis if they met all of these four criteria and then suddenly stopped meeting it. What it means is you managed the situation effectively or they were able to regain self-control and then you guys are able to work through that and manage the situation together. So I just wanted to be clear on that so that you guys don't think like, oh, well, these issues are happening, but then by the time SMART or the police get there, it's not happening anymore. That doesn't mean that they were never in crisis. It just means that you guys effectively manage the situation together or as a team. So 
we're going to transition into risk assessment versus risk management. Risk assessment has everything to do with gathering information. Risk management has everything to do with making a decision on how to deal with the crisis after you've decided through the information gathering process that you are actually in crisis. And I know that that sounds very weird. Like for some people, it's like, what do you mean? Like, you know, you're in crisis. Well, I'm a clinician, but when I was a frontline staff, there were times when a clinician said, oh, this is a crisis, we need to call 911. And I was like, mm, maybe not, like, let me talk to them, right? Because it was relational. And I got along with that individual in a way that I was able to say, is it okay if I try and help you and can we work it out? And then they were able to like transition through to a solution before taking it to the next level. As a clinician though, if someone mentions suicide, homicide, or comes up with a plan that makes me believe that one of those endings are inevitable, then they're definitely in crisis. Whereas their family might say, oh, they're, they're always talking about suicide. So why would we call anyone? You know, we had a situation yesterday where um, a person called for assistance because they found their brother attempting to hang himself with the belt. And his response was to cut the brother down and just try and make a therapy appointment. Our thoughts were, we'll call 911, call someone so he can be stabilized and he can go into a hospital. And, and the family was like, well, but he does this. Okay, so he's chronically in crisis, which means that he's not been stable. And so he's not going into crisis, he stays in crisis. And he's one who someone needs to be managing his situation because it's, it's, an, it's a long crisis situation that the family has become used to it. So it's important to say, you know, what may be a crisis to me may not be a crisis to a family member or a frontline staff who um, maybe focuses on substance use. And so when we talk about risk assessment versus risk management, it's very important in terms of communication for how a team decides whether or not they're in crisis or whether or not they are um, gonna manage it. Denise raised her hand and then we have a comment from Chandra. Go ahead, Denise, please. And you can unmute yourself and um, ask your question. Denise? Okay. Um. Oh, okay. Um, if you have a question, you can also type it into the chat box. So Chandra said, with members having borderline personality, you're always assessing and always reassessing. Absolutely. Um, assessment is definitely ongoing. And the great thing that we'll get into is how to assess the risk using telehealth or, um, you know, a, a telephone session, especially during the time of COVID. Oftentimes we get so used to having interactions with our clients in person that when we can't see them, we can't gauge the risk the same way. So we will actually cover that and we'll go over behaviors and we'll go over scenarios um, so that we can process what that will look like in terms of reassessing and reassessing. We also have had um, clients to not be honest about what they are experiencing. So 
you know, you ask them, do you have any suicidal plans? And they're like, no, but you are recognizing behaviors such as giving things away, um, having no goals, saying that they're not going to be around this time next week as indicators that the client has actually a plan, but they're not sharing it. So we'll also go over that as well. Um, So Denise has a question, but she's not allowed to unmute herself. Can um, someone assist her with unmuting herself so she can ask her question, please? Okay, it let me do it now. Thank you. Hi, this is Denise. Hi, Denise. So my question is more along the clinical side. So I'm on an MDT team and temporary a few, you know, sometimes during the week we have our nurse right out with us. Uh, we share nurses, our teams do, and sometimes we encounter clients where, say, they take their blood pressure, or I'm not really clinical, but, or like their, their diabetes, or, you know, their sugar levels, and it's really high, or it's in the part where it's, it's an emergency, but the person is asymptomatic, and sometimes they make the call whether or not we take them to the hospital or not. Um, you, how do we make those calls? Well, I, I want to make sure that I understand your question. Uh, you wanting to clarify, like, what happens in the event of um, someone clinical making a decision to say, hey, this person needs to be given this level of care, um, can you take them or we're going to call them, right? Yes. I think in in and, many, in, oh, then, sorry. Sorry. And then sometimes amongst the team, they're like, you know, oh, well, they, they don't, like I said, they're asymptomatic. They look perfectly fine. And, you know, I've seen the situation be downplayed, but if the levels are that high, it's, it, but then that may be their baseline. So I'm glad you mentioned that baseline. Um, so it's just a very like murky waters to get into sometimes when we don't treat the client despite the, the evidence that's given to us. Absolutely. I have two responses for that. The first is sometimes people are calm, but they're not relaxed. Um, or vice versa. So it would look like a person that you're describing where they look calm, but they're very tense. Their heart is racing. Maybe their head is throbbing. Um, their body, it looks locked up, but for all intents and purposes, they are calm. Okay. Right? Um, and so just because the physical presentation is incongruent with the clinical information, doesn't mean we don't treat. At least that's my my opinion as a therapist, because oftentimes people present to us with incongruence when they are experiencing high levels of stress, anxiety, and an absence of resources. And so um, many of our consumers, especially now, with many of the resources and access to them on lockdown, we're going to see an increase in that incongruence because people are just trying to cope. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so what I would encourage you as my second um, response is you always treat if it appears that there's a problem. 
okay. better safe than sorry. And okay, that's right. what we talk about when we're saying like gathering information, gathering information. So, okay, this individual, the nurse is saying medically they need to go. Right. And you're like, okay, well, they've gathered all the information that they need to manage this situation. So they are actually giving us a directive and they're managing what they see as an issue. Whereas we would gather and ask questions and kind of see, okay, what the intent is and look at the trajectory of us not calling versus calling, you know, because a lot of clinicians at least from my perspective and someone could have a different one which would be great um a lot of the information we gather from clients is is subjective all of the information and so we have to gather so much more to see where they're really at because we can't scan them and a diagnosis comes up or we can't take their temperature and a diagnosis or a risk assessment comes up right Um, But as a medical professional saying this needs to be done, here's my management of this situation, like we have to support that team member. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, Does anyone have a different perspective or a different thought on that? Supporting a team member who arrives at a different situational um, decision than maybe you would because we absolutely will get into that tomorrow as well in our, our breakout groups. Okay, so what's super significant about um, Denise's question is it leads us into how I assess risk versus how you assess risk and how I may manage risk versus how you may manage it. Because if I look at my client and I say, okay, you know, they're not telling me they have a plan, but I know the ideations are there. They've mentioned desire in the last 72 hours. I am observing incongruence between what they're saying versus what they're showing versus what they're doing. I'm also not seeing consistency in their adherence to medication. They mentioned that they had a relapse, right? Because now we're getting into things that may trigger impulsivity. So now I'm like, oh, okay, well, what, what can I do to really clarify this? I have to ask more questions, right? Still assessing risk, still assessing risk, where someone else may have said, oh, nope, I've got enough to say this person is um, a high risk to themselves or someone else. So when we're talking about how you assess risk in a team setting, this is super important because you guys have to come to the same agreement of whether or not it's time to manage this risk. Because if I say, I think we need more questions asked, and someone says, well, no, no, I'm going to call PMRT, there's going to be a gap in how we manage this, and we could actually escalate the client and the situation um, more quickly than it would have gone. But this is the trajectory or the steps to what crisis would look like. So you start with assessing the crisis. You start with assessment. You start with gathering information. We're gathering information, right? We're asking more questions. Then we're looking at management of the risk. You know, we've gathered enough information for us to say, ooh, okay, I think we need to make a decision now. And then we try and manage it. Part of managing is to say, okay, what decision do we want to make? And what team players are we going to bring into the fold? Once we figure out those team players, then we also need to figure out the protocol. What's going to be next? So who's going to do what? And we're also going to glean this out uh, as we move forward in the training as well in terms of how to utilize your team players. 
So then we say there's follow-up. So we've assessed, we've gathered information, we've decided that we have a situation we have to manage, we've pulled in the right team players, everyone has a role, we know what protocol we're gonna take. Then how do you bring that client back to reintegration so that way you can create a plan that proactively addresses whatever triggered this crisis to begin with, right? So it's super important that we hit at least each of these, and maybe this is not all inclusive for some or more inclusive for others than it has been in the past, but when we're talking about how to go from risk assessment to risk management or how to go from um, assessing if we have a crisis to ending a crisis, it usually starts with these steps. You assess the situation, you decide that there's a problem that needs to be managed, you pull your team players in, you guys give each other roles, identify the steps or protocol you're going to take, and then there has to be a plan for follow-up and reintegrating that client back into the setting. Part of identifying risk has to take into consideration the behaviors, the history for um, the client's behaviors or history in terms of their baseline. What was the reason for the referral if this is a new client or if this is a client who has um, repeat challenges? What is the reason for referral? And then also substance use. Are they actively using or when was their last date of use and what is their drug of choice? And then medication. Are they adhering to that prescription um, regimen? Are they um, having a reaction to it? How long have they been on it? And these are to help you with identifying the level of risk that you're currently observing or experiencing. The reason that these things are important is because this is gonna have to be communicated to whatever system of support you pull in to help manage the crisis. So behaviors. This is our lengthiest conversation because we're going over what are some things you may see when a client is transitioning into a crisis. So we usually like to break it up into four areas because sometimes clients don't show any signs right away, but they'll self-report or you've made observations or they've made comments about medication. So, um, you know, we'll talk about mental status, self-reports, observations, and medication. When we're talking about mental status, we're talking about what's going on emotionally. We're talking about um, how do they look? Are they aware of the date and time? Are they neat? Are they clean? Are they well-kept? Um, are they alert? Are they orient? Are they engaged with you? Are they guarded? Um, are they congenial? Are they attentive? Or are they short and curt? Are they dismissive? Um, are they dressed appropriate for the weather? You know, what does this client actually look like in terms of what's going on inside or, or in front of you? And then when we talk about self-reports, what has this client said over the last few interactions? Has this client said things like, I don't think I'm doing well, or I think I'm going to need help? Um, in the last maybe five to six weeks, I've gotten messages from clients that just say, I don't trust myself, or I don't think I'm doing well, or, um, you know, some of them have actually texted me like full length journal entries, and I call them right away like, hey, can we get in um, to see you, or can you come in to see us? 
you know, because when a client is self-reporting that they are at their wit's end, um, that, that's them requesting your immediate support. Self-report is a huge indicator in terms of where a client is and how they're doing. And I know that some of you guys are saying, duh, like it's the client, right? They're telling us they need us, they, you know, they need us. Oftentimes, and this is where we talk about safety in terms of how you're doing, how you're feeling. Sometimes we can feel um, compassion fatigue, burnout, or some level of vicarious traumatization where a client reporting that they're having a need does not carry the same weight that it would if we were healthy. So I have a client who chronically reports um, that she, you know, wants to end it all. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, how would you do it? You know, and I go through our process. Um, but the one time she didn't say it, I was like, oh, you know, I didn't hear you say that today. And she was surprised that I caught that. Um, sometimes the absence of something is equally as important as the presence of something. And we have to be taking care of ourselves so we can catch those things, especially when it comes to what a client is saying about where they are, how they're doing, and what they need. A self-report is a huge, huge um, tool that our clients give us to assess where they are and where they're going. So definitely being mindful of that. So mental status, self-reports, those are considerations that you make when you're looking at, okay, are we heading into a crisis? Observations that may let you know you are in crisis are usually made with regard to emotional signs, behavioral signs, or cognitive signs. So some observations of emotional signs that you're heading into a crisis or you are already in a crisis would be crying, yelling, mutism, arguing, inappropriate laughter, fear, confusion. So maybe this client says that they're angry with you and you never listen to them and then they suddenly just go quiet. They're suddenly just very quiet, right? We're looking at what happened in the conversation that triggered silence. Some behavioral signs that we may observe, rocking or swaying, rapid breaths, shaking extremities, pressured speech, tenseness in the body, Maybe um, they've increased or decreased their voice tone. Maybe they're avoiding eye contact or eye contact is fleeting. Maybe their fists are clenched. Maybe their jaws are clenched. Maybe they're pacing. Maybe they seem skittish. Maybe they're throwing things, right? These are signs that let us know, okay, we, we are transitioning past the point of no return. The reason is because they've entered into um, a point in their physical response where they are now exerting energy. And so that may be hard to bring a client back from. Cognitive signs may be defensive statements or overgeneralizing, black or white thinking, catastrophic thinking, blaming, obsessions, refusing to listen. So you're, you're seeing someone who is unable to redirect themselves from the point of no return when you have emotional signs, behavioral signs, cognitive signs, self-reports, and maybe you've already observed through a mental status exam that they are not um, orient or alert or engaged. So you may in fact be in a crisis when all of those elements are present. 
But then also medication, are they having a response to their newly prescribed medication? Are they having a reaction um, to something that they're taking with regard to maybe food or drink or substance that's reacting to their medication? Or have they stopped taking their medication because they don't like their psychiatrist? You know, what are, what are we seeing? What are we hearing? How are they responding? Um, what's going on with them? But then also, we may see them saying things like, no one listens, no one listens. Nobody ever listens to me. No one's paying attention to me. No one hears me. So when we're talking about how a client is doing and whether or not they're in crises, oftentimes you may observe behaviors that tell you, okay, this is a high risk and we are in crises. Um, and in terms of assessment and gathering information, I have enough information to say we are in crisis. So in addition to behaviors, we're also looking at the history or presence of substance use. You know, what substance are they using? Are they using an upper or a downer? Or something that they're going to go through withdrawal that's going to create agitation and physical pain? You know, what is the history of that and what is the presence? What is their drug of choice? Again, we're gathering information so we know how to proceed with managing the crisis. Is there a history or presence of recklessness? How do they respond to distress? Are they likely to be impulsive or reckless? If this is the case, then we know we, we may need to get a different system of support involved than what our agency can offer alone. Is there a history of hospitalization or are they currently hospitalized? This is super significant because it lets us know that we may just be looking at stabilizing an individual and what are all the tools or supports we have that can immediately stabilize someone. When we get in our team, what kind of questions are we gonna ask that let us know, okay, we need to stabilize this individual and then provide um, a certain level of support. Is there aggression or assault present or is there a history of it? Those two elements typically transition you right into crisis. They let you know that you are in crises um, and, and the team support that you provide around that um, usually is just minimize the safety issues as quickly as possible. And is there a history or presence of hallucinations? The reason that this is important is because you may not be in a position where you're going to be able to um, help someone who is coping with command hallucinations challenge those thoughts or challenge those hallucinations in the moment. So again, you may have to resort to managing the crises by just keeping everyone safe. When we're looking at the reason for referral as part of your risk assessment and identifying the level of risk, the super significant portion of this in terms of why is the referral important at all has to do with where did this person leave from or where are they coming from in terms of is there a step down that they're coming to or is it a psychiatric hospital that they're coming to like what precipitated this person's transition into your care and if it was something that's happened in the last 24 to 72 hours, is that still a factor that's triggering them and keeping them from transitioning out of crisis? Or is it a trigger that's gonna transition them into crisis if we bring it up or ask about it? The reason that this is super important again is because it helps us to identify how we're going to respond to the individual and what needs or expectations they may have. 
So for example, if a person is coming into a psychiatric facility, then their expectations may be tied to how are you gonna get me to calm down and keep me safe? Their presenting problems are specifically tied to danger to themselves or danger to others or a grave disability. There are very limited things you can do to respond to managing those particular situations. So when we look at the reason for referral, we're looking at how we would typically manage a response in the event that that person comes to us unstable or that person needs to go to a place to stabilize after having been with us for some time. Expectations of agency is super important. One of the great conversations that came up um, in, in every training so far has been how the expectations that the client or consumer has of your agency can trigger crises. So for example, if I feel like you are supposed to help me with housing and you don't help me with housing, then I'm angry and now I don't wanna to listen to you and I'm in crises, well, how did I come to that expectation and how can I have that expectation restructured for me? You know, oftentimes you can avert a crisis by providing a resource and walking with that client or consumer through obtaining access to that resource. Um, but we don't want to misstate information or make promises because the expectations that a consumer has can, when unmet, can really trigger a crisis. All right, and then in terms of continuing to assess and identify risk, specifically with regard to substance use and medication, we are looking at, is this client actively using? Is this client in a reasonable state of mind where they can identify what their needs are? Or are they actively using and that's preventing us from providing them support in a way that would be helpful? Are they med compliant? If not, what we are looking at is challenges with regard to helping them calm down if physically they have an ailment or if they are physiologically having a response to the absence of something. We may just need to be ready to call um, an ambulance of some sort. And then what are the history of behaviors while actively using so that those who are um, coming to offer support know what to expect? right, because we have to communicate what people are going to be walking into. So with regard to assessing for suicide and risk with telehealth, so virtual sessions, virtual check-ins, you don't see the person um, physically in front of you except through a screen, whether it's their phone or computer. Some strategies for assessing risk are to, you know, look them over so that you can see, are they still dressed appropriately for the weather? What's going on in their background? What do you hear in their background? Um, do you see any animals that they've come to identify as protective factors? Do you see um, maybe elements of hoarding or is it unkempt? Um, or are there family members in the background who the client has mentioned repeatedly, um, or are there um, things that stand out in terms of things on the wall, things in their room, are they missing a bed, or, you know, do you see plates with food everywhere, or, you know, what kind of dynamics are you observing in the background, right, because this really gives you an opportunity to see into the background 
um, of the client that we've been working with who maybe we haven't been to their home or we don't know where they hang out at, but we're checking in using telehealth and we're really getting the opportunity to see them in a more natural setting. Um, or when we're using telehealth, do we notice that that client is never in their home? Or do we notice that they're never um, in a, the same place? You know, Or if we notice that they're in the encampment or maybe um, wherever they are resting their head for the day, does it look safe? Do they look like they're indoors? Um, do you notice any markings or anything on their arms, face, anything that is available to observe? You know, telehealth still gives us a great wealth of information. Um, and I advocate for that during this time versus telephone check-ins because a telehealth, a virtual session can really help you to observe where this person is physically while you're gauging where they are emotionally. Telephone calls, when you're gauging suicide and risk assessment, you're not necessarily able to see the person, but maybe you take note of what you hear in their background and you ask them questions that allude to where they're gonna be this time next week or in a couple of weeks or what they think they'd like to do um, after the pandemic uh, shelter in place orders lift. You know, you start asking questions with regards to time frames, like, oh, what are you gonna be doing next week? Or, you know, I can't wait to see you when we're back in the office in a few weeks. Do you think you're gonna need transportation? Things like that that kind of help you know whether or not this person is future oriented, um, but also checking in on goals or family members, checking in on pets, or asking them how they've been sleeping, or what are some great things that happened this week, you know, because you want to gauge where this person is at emotionally, and sometimes asking, well, are you self-harming? Well, maybe they don't consider cutting or burning or hair pulling self-harm. They consider it a, a relief, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to gauge risk through conversation and seeing how they're doing and whether or not they're thinking about the future or whether or not they're having good experiences currently or whether or not they feel supported currently. And then also asking them how they're feeling about COVID-19 specifically. What is their hope like? What do they think the world will be like afterward? Are they gonna be okay if we have to shelter in place a little longer? Um, what has changed for them since COVID-19? You know, what do they expect to go back to normal when the orders are lifted? This is super important because this is giving us insight into what this person's thought processes are, what this person's optimism and hope looks like, whether they are looking forward to the future or if they feel like it's going to be too much to handle. You know, it really helps us gauge risk um, because we're trying to figure out how to support this person and they may have an idea based on what they think they're either gonna be missing or gonna be coming up against. And so having this conversation is super important. Is there anyone who has experience um, with regard to risk assessment or suicide specifically tied to COVID-19 or, or if this has increased the presence of suicide um, and homicidal ideations in your clients, has this increased since COVID? What are some of your experiences? Or does anyone have any experience um, verbalizing to a client that you are experiencing stress and then that opened the door for them? Clients are feeling restless, absolutely. 
definitely more sadness and isolation with COVID, absolutely. Um, I attended this webinar where the facilitator shared that COVID has imposed a sense of shame into individuals because isolation is inevitable and it's also required. And usually withdrawal and isolation are things that we do when we feel shame. And so he was saying that some of our clients may really be in a place where they are experiencing anxiety and shame, even tied to being in a situation where maybe they've lost their job um, and don't have enough savings, or maybe they are alone, or maybe they feel worried, um, and it's really causing a lot of people to question their decisions. There's a lot of uncertainty, and for our clients who are already experiencing high levels of anxiety and worry due to um, you know, day-to-day -day uncertainties, COVID-19 has triggered thoughts of, for many of them, from my um, professional experience, just these last 16 weeks, it really has triggered thoughts of like, well, why wait? What's next? What's after this? What's the point? Um, and I think that we're starting to see that, especially with the increase in, you know, protests and, and unrest and, and people just kind of feeling like, there's no point. Has anyone seen an increase or heard an increase in their clients using that type of hopeless language? And if so, what do you glean from that? What do you take from that to mean um, the increase in hopelessness or hopeless language? I think for me, um, I see the increase in hopeless language as an opportunity to reconnect clients to um, goals from the outset of therapy like one of the questions we ask is what would it look like if therapy was working how would you know therapy was working and so when they say oh i'll go out more or i won't be as sad or depressed reconnecting them to the possibility that those goals are still an option can sometimes help mitigate what the impact of COVID 19 has been um, i know again speaking professionally from my experience i had a client who legit for a whole year had catastrophic thinking and just knew the world was going to end due to disease or war and she had no desire to live and we spent an entire year restructuring her thought process and then when the shelter in place orders went into effect initially in march she said well i've been prepared for this so I'll be all right. You know, so reminding clients that they have the capacity to deal with this is very, very, very important. Members are more hopeful because their room key, they've been linked to housing due to COVID-19. Absolutely, absolutely. I thought that it was amazing how quickly people were linked to housing due to this pandemic and I know that this has actually triggered stress in some providers who are like, well, what happens afterward? You know, so we may not see an increase in the need to assess risk, but definitely a need to manage our own stress and anxiety tied to, well, what happens when you remove the support that you've given a client through this period? But yes, so for some members who've um, gotten access to resources, um, checking in with them around their concerns related to what happens afterward um, is also a way to prevent 
crises because you start to put a plan in place in the event that these resources will go away after. So a lot of crisis management is also preventative. We can also um, prevent crisis by identifying opportunities to address issues that are inevitable. So conversation around um, COVID and post-COVID are going to be very important to have, especially when we talk about coming back into the office or coming back into sessions that are, are, are not virtual or meeting up again at a, a more consistent pace. You know, many clients may feel like, well, why do I have to do that now? And I didn't have to do it then, like we're fine. So being aware of the impact of COVID on not just service provision, but getting back to, you know, whatever normal is, um, it, it's a conversation that needs to be had in terms of being able to prevent um, crisis from arising. Um, someone wants to also agree with another peer who said that COVID had actually a result of it um, led to helping them get clients linked to resources, and now they know where to link them and how to locate them. I think that that is a really great, um, you know, result to have from such a challenging experience. Now we're going to go into um, remaining calm and strategies to manage your emotional response during a crisis. When we talk about remaining calm and having strategies to manage your emotional response during a crisis, it is for the sole purpose of being able to keep from increasing the likelihood that a client is going to react or that you are going to be injured. And remaining calm and managing your emotional response is one of the primary ways to um, come away from a crisis or to transition healthily into a crisis so that you're able to manage it. So remaining calm is actually highly significant in just being able to be present, be aware, uh, be focused, and, and be able to communicate in a way that keeps you safe, keeps the client safe, also be able to make decisions that keep you both safe. But more than that, um, it gives you the opportunity to really, really um, take into consideration the needs of everyone involved while knowing your exits and, you know, knowing where the client is emotionally and being able to ask questions in case you have to go back to assessing the issue for managing it. Ways to take care of you, right? What we're talking about is being able to remain calm, being able to take deep breaths, being able to notice your surroundings, um, these are things when we say take care of you that keep you in the moment and keep you calm and alert and aware and thinking and assessing and eventually transitioning into managing. So these are not all inclusive, but these are just some things that are repetitively mentioned or research shows to really help you take care of you in the moment. Take your deep breaths, you know, through your nose and out your mouth. Notice your surroundings. Take a physical step back. Listen to your instinct. Be open to remaining silent. Ask for assistance. Swap out and know where you are in proximity to the client, the exit, your back being against the wall, all of those things. I know I've had experiences where a client will say something like, 
why are you why are you looking at me like that or you know why are you smiling and it's kind of like oh i didn't know i was smiling i apologize would you like me to swap out you know knowing what's going on in in me has helped me to not react or respond to things that clients say that sometimes sound or seem unreasonable or irrational. But when I take my deep breath and I start to look for my closest exit, I know I'm gonna have to take a physical step back, especially because I'm tall, I'm 5'11". That's really intimidating for some consumers who feel like I tower over them. So I would never wanna be towering over someone who appears to be escalating. Um, I'm going to listen to my instinct that tells me maybe this client doesn't look like they're agitated, but maybe I notice that their fist and their jaw is clenched. Maybe I notice that they um, have been talking a lot about feeling invalidated or thrown away or rejected. I'm going to say, oh, okay, something's telling me to just redirect the conversation or something. I feel like something's about to happen. You know, like listening to your instinct is super important. There's this book called The Gift of Fear. And I always talk about it because um, it's an amazing book. It's by Gavin DeBecker. And it really taps into listening to what's going on in you when you have a situation taking place that could end in you being harmed or someone near you being harmed. Um, you know, listening to your instinct is, is almost primal in a sense, the way it operates. It is primal. And so just listening to it can often um, help you to see situations as they are likely to happen, um, and then you can respond accordingly. Be open to remaining silent. You know, be open to knowing that um, you don't have to say something right now. You don't have to share insight. You don't have to say anything. You can just be silent. You know, and silence can look like active listening, like nodding your head and 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 hearing them and and um, validating their experience without asking anything. This is really an opportunity to take care of you because you're you're taking in information versus uh, formulating a response and 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 having to fix, fix, fix or solve, solve, solve. Silence is often very helpful. So you can be open to remaining silent and use that as a time that you can talk to you internally to calm you and, and bring you to the present. You can also ask for assistance. You can ask to swap out. You may not be the individual to help this consumer who is currently in crisis. You may also not be the individual who is trained in the specific skill set that they need, and that's okay. But take care of yourself and you can swap out if you need to. It's always an option. If you're in a situation where you can't swap out, I encourage you to pay attention to, you know, where you are in terms of do you feel anxious, do you feel worried, do you feel nervous? Or are you taking deep breaths? Are you aware of your surroundings? Are you listening to your instinct that's telling you to maybe back up and, you know, transition safely to, um, a space further away from the client, or have you shot a text to your supervisor, peer, or program manager to say, hey, I need a little bit more support, um, or even just be silent until it's safe for you to begin re-engaging the client. 
So, you know, those are strategies for if you're not in a space to um, swap out. But always make sure you're aware of how close you are to a client. Physical proxemics is so important. We had a situation recently where the clinician was sitting next to an escalated client. The client was sitting as well. And the client had been arguing and fighting with staff. Um, she had not liked the information that she had received with regard to um, her discharge plan. And the therapist, the clinician thought, you know, well, I can just sit here and I can be close to her and we can be okay. Well, it actually turned out that um, the client was not okay with her sitting next to her and she just turned around and started punching her. You know, my question was after we were debriefing and talking about ways to um, promote safety in those situations, I just couldn't wrap my head around, well, how did you end up sitting so close to her? You know, and she was saying, well, I just, I didn't realize how close I was. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's huge. Knowing where you are in relation to where a client is, respecting each other's um, physical space is super important to remaining safe. Now we're gonna talk about um, protocol with regard to a team approach. So when we talk about a team approach, does anyone work in a space where um, you don't work with a team? So, so most of you work in a team setting, correct? Where you have at least one person that's gonna go out with you everywhere. I wonder how many of you do not work in um, team settings. If you don't work in a team setting, can you, um, you know, type in no, I don't, or you can raise your hand. Oh, so some of you are mobile homeless FSP. Okay. The reason I ask about a team setting is because um, I'm wondering how many of you know who the lead is on your team during a crisis, um, or who instinctively becomes a leader. One person is always alone, okay, because of the um, FSP part that you do. Some people work in mental health outpatient clinics. Someone's saying they're not part of a team setting. Okay, so this is super significant. If we're saying take a team approach, but you're on your own, it is probably not easy to take a team approach. So when we're saying who is the lead, the lead may be you if you work as an individual. The reason that that's important is because you may have to tell the client, I am going to step away and make a call to get someone who can help us. If you work with a team, that's part of the decision-making that would happen prior to you actually going in to try and manage the situation. The reason that this is significant is because if you don't have a teammate with you while you're trying to manage a situation, then um, you can feel overwhelmed, you can feel um, a little nervous, you can feel anxious and very tense, and then you, you make decisions out of fear. And so if at all possible, I definitely encourage you to bring up conversations in your team meetings around what is the preferred method of communication when you don't have a team and you're trying to manage a crisis. 
Some people have an assigned team lead in a team setting, um, and they use designated code words for emergencies. I'm gonna ask you guys a, a question right now just to help you kind of check in with yourself. How many of you know the different code words or color codes for if there's an emergency situation and you're in the building? How many of you, as you're sitting and you're listening, how many of you are aware, just for your own knowledge, of what a code green is or a code silver or gray or um, what the process or protocol is for ushering clients out during a fire drill? Or um, since you're working from home, what would be the protocol if you were checking in with the client and they had an emergency breakout where they are, right? What do you do? How do you provide support in that instance if the, if the client is in crisis away from you? Many people are identifying that um, you are aware of what the codes are. Um, someone said that you have them posted at every desk station, which is great, and they are on the back of your IDs. How many of you have something in your ID badge cover that covers up that code? Maybe your driver's license or a debit card or your business cards or um, business cards of someone else who was maybe at um, an MDT or a CFTM or who was maybe at um, a recent training that you went to, right? So, you know, make sure those things are visible if you're able to. But if you're able to work in a team approach, so I just, I wanna go back to be clear. If you're working individually and you don't have the option of a team approach, how do you transition out of the room or out of the situation or away from the consumer to make the call to your team lead to say, hey, I have a need. I have an issue going on. I need you to get here. I am at, you know, one, two, three, four, Fourth uh, Street between San Pedro and whatever, you know, um, how do you do that? And do you feel comfortable? How many of you feel comfortable actually transitioning away from a client to um, call-in support? We've used GroupMe. Yes, we've used that too, where we send that there's a situation and the beautiful thing is that the whole team got it and now the whole team is transitioning. We also want to be careful of that, too, though, because we don't want too many people present when handling a crisis situation. It can actually become disruptive and um, a distraction to the individual trying to manage the crisis. So if we're going to have a team approach, who is the crisis peers that will show up and who will be the lead? The lead is usually the person that's going to deal directly with the client. They're going to let the client know what kind of decisions can and cannot be made. They're going to let the client know what they can and cannot do for them in the moment. They're going to be the one who tries to de-escalate the situation with the client. And they're going to designate who's going to call 911 or the hospital in the event that violence breaks out. They're also going to designate who's going to be the second person to support this client in the event they no longer want to deal with the lead. I know that this sounds like super um, intense sometimes because our clients typically, um, you know, they, they are amicable at times um, and they also are open to receiving services and supports. 
However, we're, we're looking at what this, um, not just the pandemic, but the increase in the cost of living, the adjustment to um, particular ordinances that make homelessness illegal and the crackdown on that, as well as the um, decrease in services and supports or the new mandates that um, make getting resources or access to resources more difficult. Who is already in need of basic services and supports and resources. So it's not that we expect our consumers to go off the rails just because they're, they're mental health consumers, no. The goal is to describe situations that have happened, are likely to happen, and are frequently happening. And the reason I bring that up is because I, I know that we're talking about how to work with consumers when they become violent, if violence breaks out. But we just want to make sure that we're aware that times are very, very stressful, people are very, very unpredictable, and we don't want to make assumptions about the quality of the relationship that we have with our consumers that will make us lower our guards for ensuring that we practice safety protocol at all times. Okay. So take the team approach if possible. The person that's the lead is usually going to be the one directly working and engaging the consumer. They're going to designate who's going to make the call and who will be called in the event that violence breaks out. They're also going to be the one to designate the second person to offer support in the event they need, in the event that they need to swap out. Plus, team approaches help for documentation. When you're able to write who did what, how they did it, um, and you know what what the group decision was in terms of how you decided to manage um, the risk. Safety proofing is huge. Let's say you're already in crises, right? And now you're saying, okay, how can we minimize um, injury or um, how can we minimize safety issues or how can we minimize um, this getting out of hand more than it already is? So when we talk about safety proofing, we're looking at safety proofing in terms of location, proximity, and the physical person. Safety proofing your environment, specifically with regard to the physical person, we're looking at taking off things that can be snatched, grabbed, or used as a weapon. We've had situations where um, staff members have been walking through a residential setting, for example, and their lanyards are on backwards for whatever the reason, and a client walks by and gently tugs um, and, and catches that um, staff member off guard because they literally like choked them, you know, and, and that's very jarring. Um, we've had situations where staff members were seated next to a client, the client got up to maybe get some water, the staff member was focused on paperwork, and the client briefly came and, and wrapped like a sweater or something around that staff member's neck. And so, you know, it's not necessarily that you can never wear a necklace or a lanyard, but it's making sure that you're aware that those things can become a weapon and when a person is escalated, removing that from your neck um, or pulling your hair back into a ponytail or a bun if you recognize that this client is escalated and they tend to get aggressive and you don't want your hair pulled. Or maybe, um, you know, exiting to drop everything off except your badge and your phone 
um, so that you can call for appropriate support, but you don't have extra things weighing you down. Um, but then also removing anything sharp from around your physical person. If you're seated at your desk, maybe you get rid of all the pencils, you get rid of all the um, the ink pens, the scissors, um, any paper clips. Maybe you have someone who enjoys self-harm as a way of self-soothing. Um, you would remove those things from being around you and around that individual. In terms of safety proofing your proximity, you're looking at where you are, you're looking at the closest exits, you're looking at removing things from being in front of the closest exits, you're looking at um, maybe talking to someone about, you know, maybe having all the extension cords or cables connected to any technology kind of put out of the way or um, taped to the wall so that you can get in and out of your space more quickly. We're talking about if you're visiting someone in an encampment or in the community, you're looking at making sure that you don't take anything with you, you have uncomfortable shoes, and you are able to um, minimize what you um, take from them in terms of maybe if you're helping them move or transport something, you don't want to take like any bed bugs or anything like that. So when we talk about proximity, we're talking about what is immediately around you or what will be immediately around you that you can put um, something in place to minimize potential safety issues. Whereas the physical person is something that's on your body. Um, location, we're talking about where are you going and if you can put things in place to safety proof that area, like if you're going to a homeless encampment and it's dark, maybe you can park in such a way that it provides you lighting from your headlights, or maybe you can bring a flashlight with you. Um, or maybe if it's somewhere like under a freeway pass, maybe you can encourage the client to meet a little bit away from it so that you guys are more out in the open and you are seen by others, um, especially in the event that that client has a medical issue and you would need to describe where you are and what you're wearing. Um, you know, or if you are in a place where maybe you um, are kneeling and that client tends to get aggressive and agitated and you notice that it's a place that maybe has broken bottles or needles or something like that, you maybe opt to um, meet somewhere else to avoid that kind of um, situation where you're unable to safety proof because of the location. So what I would like to do is just kind of go back through and we're going to um, just do a recap, do a review. The reason is because we're going to focus on de-escalation and assessment and wellness plans tomorrow, or excuse me, on Thursday, I apologize. Um, so we're going to focus on those and we're going to have breakout groups around those. And I'd also like you guys to be able to come back with questions, maybe after things kind of settle in um, because this is usually a full day in-person training. So I wanna make sure that nothing got lost in translation. Um, so you can totally come back on Thursday with questions. But we're gonna go ahead and do a recap and review. Um, and then I am gonna ask you guys um, for questions with regards to any of the materials. When we talk about field safety versus office safety, we're talking about being away from home base. 
So being in the field is being away from home base. We're talking that all of the policy and protocol needs to be in alignment with Department of Mental Health expectations and guidelines. And one of the best tools that you'll have on your side while you're assessing risk and identifying crises is situational awareness so that you can either enter or exit a space quickly and safely, but then also so that you can safety-proof yourself and the environment in a way that's um, healthiest for everyone. We also um, mentioned awareness and response and just being able to look at a crisis or a situation and identify whether or not you needed to gather more information or manage a situation um, in the best way possible. And then looking at how awareness and building healthy practices and safe practices can really help you implement strategies for remaining safe in the field and in the office. And then we reviewed safety practices for outreach. But when we come back together, please let me know if there are any um, areas that you want clarified or you have questions about. Um, we talked about some other areas of safety in the field, like vehicle safety, where you're parking, leaving things in plain sight, physical safety, what are you wearing, what do you have on you, um, HIPAA, how to keep things locked and put away, health and wellness, taking care of you so that you're alert and um, you're able to make good judgment and decision call decision making calls when put in a position where you have to move or think quickly biohazards becoming comfortable with encouraging clients to adhere to like covid regulations um, and then does your team know where you are how to communicate that and what that would look like we talked about other areas of safety um including illnesses and, and airborne diseases not necessarily in depth but in terms of making sure like you carry like water with you hand sanitizer extra gloves things like that um, to keep you from transporting those um, germs to like your vehicle or into the office how to report incidents um, or how to access medical care and being very specific when you are um, accessing services and supports where you have to lead them to where you are, uh, knowing when it's time to leave or setting boundaries with clients in the field in terms of substance use and being okay with ending a session. Uh, we also went on to define crises, situations, and what elements are present when we're trying to decide whether or not a crisis is present. We know that we are in the middle of a crisis situation when hospitalization is a possibility, safety concerns related to individuals or the consumer are present, or if there's gonna be a loss of freedom such as hospitalization or jail, or loss of access to pertinent resources are present. Um, we also kind of went through the steps of risk assessment versus risk management, where you start off by gathering information, and once you've decided that you need to address the issue, you become um, a manage manager of the situation so you're actually in crises when you've decided you need to do something and manage a situation and then you are calling in your team players and you are looking at who's going to do what who's going to assign who to make the call um, and then you're going to discuss the follow-up for bringing that client back in to the fold reintegration so to speak um, we looked at how to identify risk like what situ what content to take into consideration or what categories when you are assessing risks such as behaviors, history, reason for referral, substance use, medication, 
behaviors, looking at mental status, what's going on with them, what are you observing, what are they reporting, um, are they having a response or reaction to medication, is there a history or presence of substance use, recklessness or impulsivity, um, you know, were they currently or recently released from a hospital, um, is there aggression or assault actively, and is there active hallucinations, um, audio or Visual, auditory or visual, excuse me. What was the reason for the referral? We're taking this into consideration because it lets us know information about the client's tendencies and history. And then we talked about expectations of the agency that the client may have, uh, just as a way of either um, minimizing a crisis response by providing a resource or becoming aware of the client's expectations through crisis so that you can help them out by getting um, information or access to the resource that they're looking for. Um, also taking into consideration substance use and medication if they're actively using or if there's a med compliance issue or if there's a history of behaviors why actively using so it can kind of give us insight into what to expect when that client is in crisis um, as a result of uh, intoxication or when they're actively using. Um, and then we talked about strategies related to assessing suicide and risk um, using telehealth or when you're on the telephone, uh, and then specifically related to COVID and being aware of how this has impacted clients and their wellness. And then steps and strategies for remaining calm um, and really starting out with taking deep breaths, noticing your surroundings so that you can tap into your self-awareness and your instincts taking a physical step back to help you position yourself in a way that you're non-adversarial, but then also that you can exit the room quickly if you need to. Be open to remaining silent so that you can take care of you and use maybe some internal positive self-talk during this time. Ask for assistance if you're able um, and swap out if you're able. And then be aware of your physical proximity with regard to are you in the client's space and are they in yours? Uh, also, if you're able to utilize a team approach, knowing who is the lead, and the lead, again, is the person usually directly interacting with the client. Um, they're also usually the person that is designated um, who will be making the call in the event of violence breaking out, and then also they're designating who's going to be the second person to assist if they need to swap out. Um, and if you're unable to utilize a team approach, we're looking at maybe um, stepping out of the room and calling for assistance um, as you try to get this client some support and not be um, by yourself and trying to meet this client's needs. Um, and then in terms of safety proofing, we talked about like physical person, what that would look like in terms of safety proofing. So, you know, pulling your hair back or not wearing a lot um, of items on your lanyard. Um, or wearing comfortable shoes, taking things off that may interfere with safety, proximity, like how close are you to a client or where you're at in response to, or excuse me, in relation to an exit, um, maybe where you're at in relation to your car, your vehicle, and then location is where are you actually at and how can you um, put something in place to keep you safe. Um, based off of where you're at. 
When we talk about de-escalation, we're talking about bringing the client back down to a state of calm to where they can be stabilized. That is the goal. De-escalation is not exhausting the client, arguing with the client, fighting with the client or consumer, um, trying to be right. It is none of those things. It's really just achieving a place of stability where the client can be understood and helped until they're ready to transition um, back to their normal day or routine. Does anyone have any like questions about what de-escalation is based on what the client is presenting? So when we talk about de-escalation, again, we just want to bring the client back down to stabilization. That doesn't mean that we're going to get any treatment done. We're not looking at doing any treatment. We're not looking at doing any um, processing or resolving per se, but we are looking at bringing the client back down to calm, okay? So some nonverbal de-escalation tools and techniques, again, not all inclusive, but these are primary ones that we tend to um, fall into traps around. Proximity, like how close are you to this client? Sometimes what I've seen is people walk up to a client and reach out to be like, calm down. I would never encourage anyone to reach out toward anyone who's escalated, client or not, whether it's a client, a family member, a friend. If someone is escalated and they're experiencing total distress and emotional reactivity, I think one of the worst things you can do is walk up to them and reach out to them. That is just my personal and professional observation um, over the last maybe decade since starting in the social services field. Reaching out towards someone who is in an emotional place when they are escalated may not be the most helpful. For some people, it may work as you're talking through it and you're saying, hey, I'm going to come over and I'm going to reach out and I'm going to put my hand on your shoulder. Is that okay? I think that that's very different than just walking up to them, um, invading their personal space and physical, personal physical space and saying anything. So I would encourage you to know where you are in proximity to that client um, and what your thoughts are about whether you're going to engage them through touch or talk. I personally discourage touching any consumer, especially if they're escalated, but I know that some um, some people have clients who respond better to like a pat on the shoulder or on the back. So, you know, I, I strongly encourage you to, to work that out um, with your supervisor. But, you know, being far enough away from this client to let them breathe and kind of like move around, pace, whatever they need to do, sometimes is very, very, very helpful to that consumer so that they know that um, they have space and they can they can de-escalate as needed. So proximity is super important. Voice tone is huge. I encourage people to lower their voice tone as the client increases um, in frustration, irritability, agitation, or even as they escalate because your voice tone can relay a lot to a person who is very emotional. Think about the last time you were even in just an argument with someone very, very close to you and their voice tone was less than pleasant and you responded to it. You know, it is a natural human response to hear a person's voice tone and wonder what they meant. So 
we want to use these techniques in a sense of, okay, client is escalating, let me back away from them and preferably back away toward an exit. Then I'm going to use an appropriate voice tone, maybe try and have it monotone and, and just let them know, hey, is everything okay? Like, what can I do for you right now? What do you need? All right? Facial expression neutral. Because if you look happy or angry or if you have a stark response, that's something that is likely to be noticed and that can trigger conflict. Um, one thing I've seen a lot lately is, oh, so you're mad at me too now, huh? And it's like, oh, I'm sorry. I did not know that that was the, the facial expression that I was presenting with. No, I, I actually don't have an emotion um, that I'm feeling toward you right now. I just want to help you you know, um, really owning that maybe you weren't aware of your facial expression. So giving them space physically, hearing yourself as they hear you, knowing what your facial expression is relaying and managing your body language. You know, these are nonverbal things that can really support a client in coming back down to calm. Body language is so important. I'll never forget that um, I was working in FSP at Tarzana Treatment Center, and it was a really positive experience in the sense of the clientele we got to work with. And the client that I'm thinking about, he was just having a really rough week, and it came to a head, but he allowed us to transport him to a particular hospital. Uh, for hospitalization because he recognized in himself that he was not going to be able to keep himself safe. We walked in, he was calm, we got through the initial intake interview, and he was taking off his items to be stored, and so they called up the orderlies, and I apologize if that's not the technical name for them now, um, but they, they called up the support staff to help transition him to the back. One of the support staff came out put his gloves on, and when he put his gloves on, he slammed his hands down flat onto the, um, the counter that was there. He looked at him and he like, had, like just, you know, positioned himself in a way that was totally adversarial. I mean, all three of the staff, including myself, who had transported this client, we were utterly surprised to see this, especially because the client had been calm. And the moment the client observed that body language, he just let go. He was like, oh, so you're here to hurt me, huh? And they actually ended up restraining him with four individuals when he initially was willing to walk back there. So your body language is so important. And it's one of the reasons why proximity is one of the best things that you can keep in mind when you're trying to de-escalate someone. Giving them space and having a neutral voice, tone, facial expression, and body language can let them know that in that moment, you're there for support and not to take anything, minimize them, invalidate them, or challenge them. This is important. This is very, very important. Again, I reiterate, making sure you know where you are in proximity to that client, having a calm and neutral voice tone, um, a neutral facial expression, and neutral body language is super important. Someone noted that that worker may have been burnt out acting like that. I absolutely believe that you could see that he was something. I don't know where he was emotionally, but he absolutely triggered this client in a way that, like I said, again, he was initially walking back there and ended up being 
restrained and carried back there. Um, and, and so that was really disheartening to see, but it really let us know that the body language, all of this um, in totality is super important when offering support and trying to de-escalate a person. Some verbal de-escalation tools. So this is not necessarily you saying something specific, um, but it's more along the lines of, of you speaking in general. You know, the first, again, de-escalation tool that is helpful and useful is calming yourself and knowing where you are, checking in with you, taking care of you. Making sure that you ensure the safety of others in the environment by telling the client, you know, I don't really want everyone out there in your business, so I'm going to go ahead and clear the room, you know, just so you can come across as more supportive, but then you also know you are removing people from harm's way. You want to refrain from blaming. Well, you should have, or how come you didn't, or well, you know, right? No, the person is not in that space right now. Um, and even if they were, we don't want to blame. We want to resolve. You know, I heard somebody say once, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? And so it's like, okay, well, let's be effective. So blaming is not helpful in any capacity anyway. So we want to really refrain from using language that is blaming. Uh, we want to minimize open-ended questions. We want to really be concise and listen. And, and usually when people are in crisis, the fear is tied to, you know, something about the future that's not going to get met, not going to get done, because someone may not be listening to that individual. So you want to minimize open-ended questions. We want to minimize processing. But we do want to be direct, and then we want to hear what they have to say. We want to listen. But we also want to set limits. This is not the time when a person is in crisis to make promises you're not going to keep. Any individual will absolutely remember promises that you made to get them to calm down. So we definitely want to set limits, but we want to offer choices and we want to be honest, we want to be truthful and we want to be transparent. And we want to be open to tag teaming. You know, I don't have an answer for you, but let me see if my supervisor does. Do you mind if she comes in and I exit? Right? Be open to tag teaming. It's totally okay. Some other verbal um, de-escalation techniques include active listening, where you verbally acknowledge what the individual is communicating, um, but then the nonverbal acknowledgement of the head nodding and the eye contact is important too. Saying things like, tell me if I have this right and summarize what they say or help me understand because I am a little bit confused, um, you know, trying not to overwhelm the individual with multiple service providers in one space, you know, asking them questions, that can be overwhelming for anyone. So really just having a conversation to confirm that you understand what they need. That's super helpful. Empathy, summarization, and then silence is also very helpful. Some non, some more nonverbal de-escalation tools is avoid blocking and exit. If they want a moment alone, offer it to them. If they want to sit down, offer it to them. Um, be aware of the resources that you have at your fingertips when you're offering nonverbal support. You know, if you guys can't sit down somewhere and have water, maybe you can reflect a calm and cooperative normal voice tone. Um, be a mirror. Have neutrality in your facial expression. Relax your body. Have a non-defensive posture. Keep your hands in front of your body open and relaxed. Minimize gesturing. 
you know, these are nonverbal um, de-escalation techniques. You want to keep eye level with your consumer, but you don't have to force eye contact. You know, if they don't want to make eye contact, then that's okay too. If you are feeling overwhelmed and someone forces you to look deep into their eyes, is that going to help or hurt you? You know, so when we talk about eye contact, yes, it's super important for communication, but if it doesn't need to be present, then maybe that's okay in that moment. Treat the individual with dignity and respect. You know, shaming and disrespect trigger increased agitation, irritability, and sometimes anger. A lot of times people respond to the feeling of shame with anger, and that is not helpful in that moment. So definitely respect validation, inquisitiveness, asking what you can do to provide support, asking them how you can help them, setting boundaries, encouraging um, questions to be asked of you. You know, those things are super important when we're trying to de-escalate an individual. Um, and then, you know, we do have our community supports for emergencies that happen in the field. And, you know, we have the SMART team and we have our, this is an outdated slide, it's not PET, it's PMRT, but then there's a MET team. Um, from my understanding, and Scott and Javier, you guys can totally correct me or anyone else who is in the field, but we recently um, learned in a training that the MET team comes out with the sheriff, the SMART team comes out with LAPD or local law enforcement, and then PMRT is contacted um, to, by the clinician or the facility or even the family to send someone to where the client is as well. And so you do have those different supports based on the level of need in your location. But also remember to tag team and bring your supervisor or the manager, manager excuse me, on duty into the fold. Let them know what's going on. Bring them in. Text them. Ask them questions. Make sure you know how to communicate where you are. Remember to safety-proof your environment as much as you can in the sense of what are you wearing, um, where are you, can you clear things off your desk, or can you put things in your car, into your trunk while the client de-escalates. Be aware of your surroundings, where you're parking, um, who's present, and then know your exits.